Tonight, another cold case from the Metro Police Homicide Files. It's a murder from 1973. Welcome to the Searching for Closure podcast. One thing I've come to realize while I was taking all these forensic classes and performing all these different tests is that despite all I've done to try to understand this murder, I don't really know anything about stabbing. Well, I don't know anything about the forensic side of stab wounds, to be exact. I mean, how do they know how someone was stabbed or what was used to stab them? Luckily, one of my forensic classes was able to help educate me a little bit on it. So I'm going to try to help educate you, the listeners, on today's episode. Now, I'm obviously not an expert on the subject Honestly, it's hard to make sense out of a lot of this, but I'm going to try to do my best to convey things in simple terms. Let me start with a medical definition that will either perk your ears or put you to sleep. So, stab wounds. Stab wounds are incised wounds, where the length of injury on the surface is less than the depth of penetration into the body, and it's a result of a thrusting action where the force is delivered along the long side of a narrow pointed object. The force of impact is concentrated at the tip of the implement, and the sharper the tip, the easier it will penetrate the skin. Are you still with me? Good. Wake up. This does get interesting. I promise. It gets very interesting. So, weapons of choice in most stabbing assaults, both domestic assaults, and quote, uh, on the street assaults include locking knives, sheath knives, and kitchen knives. It's pretty interesting that you cannot really determine the dimensions of a knife from a wound. I always thought it was fairly simple. I guess CSI and law and order kind of lied to me. You see, skin is like elastic and it shrinks when the knife is pulled out of the wound. You can actually shrink up to two millimeters. Also, when the blade enters the skin at an angle, the length at the entry slit may appear longer than expected. Only solid organs, like the liver, can retain the true characteristics of the instrument. At autopsy, these wounds can be added with the examination of other wounds to make a better comparison. When medical experts are documenting wounds, they do so in terms of their anatomical position, meaning how close they are to a fixed anatomical landmark, like the top of the sternum or the point of the shoulder blade. There's a pretty big difference between different wounds caused by different stabbing instruments, as is expected. For example, when a stabbing instrument is more cone-shaped, the wound will appear much straighter, not really circular in shape. But this mostly has to do with the placement of the wounds on the body. It was suggested that this is because of the lines of cleavage, or Langer's lines, which is the natural arrangement of collagen fibers in the skin. I could try to describe these lines, but I think it would make a lot more sense if you just Googled it and looked at the pictures. Then you'll be like, oh yeah, duh, that makes total sense. Surgeons, for example, 
know that if you cut across Langer's lines, then the wound will gape open. But if you cut in the direction of these elastic fibers under the skin's surface, the wounds do not gape open. During my research, I learned that a knife that has not fully entered the skin will only produce a wound of the size as far as the blade has entered, so medical examiners have to keep that in mind. If they have a knife that starts at like a quarter of an inch at the tip and goes up to three inches at the handle, just because the knife is only made an inch incision does not mean that the knife is only an inch deep. When there are several wounds, measurements can be taken from each wound, and all that can be put together to try to determine like a better picture of what size the knife was. The majority of knives used in homicide are either a double-edged tool knife, such as the Rambo knife I used in my test. It can be a single-edged knife, like a knife that you might have in your kitchen block, or like a steak knife. Or a single-edged folding pocket knife, which a lot of hunters and tradesmen carry on a daily basis. Knives with single cutting edges, such as kitchen knives, cause wounds that have a clearly pointed edge, with the opposite edge being kind of squared off or split. It's often called a fishtail. This is usually caused by the knife rocking back and forth. From what I've learned, the quote, ideal weapon in stabbing homicides is a short, thin, stiff knife about three inches long. You know, your average pocket knife that so many people carry with them every day. Larger knives require a lot more force to penetrate skin. Also, the cheaper kitchen knives tend to break or bend on impact or when striking bone. Pathologists and forensic examiners are often asked whether a knife was serrated or not. Honestly, it's not that easy to tell. Serration markings can sometimes be made out where a knife has been drawn over the surface of the skin, but usually they're indistinguishable from wounds caused by other single-edged knives. Knives with a sharp edge on both sides of the blade, such as a bayonet or a dagger, are actually pretty rare. But they do show pointed edges on both sides of the wound, or a spindle-shaped entry slit, tapered at both ends. Knives with guards over their blade, like the Rambo-style knife that I used for the stabbing test, they can produce a distinctive bruising at one edge of the wound, where the guard has impacted against the skin, particularly where the skin is supported, such as against the chest wall. You know, I never really considered this fact when I was performing my test. If you're stabbing someone in a fit of rage 61 times and there's a guard over the blade, I imagine that it would have to just slam into the body, which would leave a lot of bruising. Now, wounds caused by other stabbing objects, such as a flathead screwdriver or a chisel may have abraded edges, and a Phillips screwdriver can leave wounds that are almost star-shaped. Dull, square-shaped objects, however, can give the same star shape due to splitting of the skin at the wound edges, so it's often hard to tell the difference. Ice picks, they produce wounds that are sometimes mistaken for small-caliber gunshot wounds. When someone's being stabbed, the knife is rarely pushed into the body and withdrawn at the exact same angle, 
unless, of course, the victim is incapacitated at the time of the assault. Both the assailant and the victim are in a highly charged state, and the wounds would reflect this. The wounds are often B-shaped or irregular, often referred to as twisting cuts. Rocking movements of the knife during an assault distort the appearances of the wound, and is often much larger than if the knife was not moving back and forth. But what about trying to see how deep a knife wound is to determine how long the blade was? How easy is that? Well, the chest or abdomen can indent during a knife attack. Remember, you usually have a closed fist that's slamming down with the knife. And structures deep within that area can be damaged at a depth where at first glance it would seem like you couldn't get to it with that weapon. The direction of the assault is a little more easier to identify. Reconstructing knife attacks can assess the position of the assailant to the victim. And the characteristics of the surface wounds can assist in determining angle of impact. For example, the edges of one side of the wound may be undercut when a knife enters the skin at an angle. In 1988, a study determined that 71% of stabbing victims survived for more than five minutes after the assault, and that survival time was not influenced by drugs or alcohol. Unless a victim was stabbed in the brainstem, death is not instant, and victims of stabbing are capable of doing things like running away or climbing upstairs before they finally collapse. If the heart was stabbed, the assault may cause the victim to drop right away, but that doesn't mean that they lost consciousness right away. 72% of people who were stabbed and yet could run away were dead within 30 minutes. And those who were stabbed in the heart, even with medical treatment, usually didn't last for more than 12 hours. I was pretty fascinated to learn more about identifying stab wounds. Not that it's going to help in my investigation, like, at all, since all I know is the number of stab wounds, but it does help to try to put yourself in the shoes of those who do have all the information. Maybe the stab wounds tell a story of who killed Tina. If it was a dagger, then perhaps it was a satanic cult or a witchcraft ritual. If it was a pocket knife, maybe it was just a random attack. If some of these 61 stab wounds were on her hands or forearms, then we know that she fought back. If they weren't, then we know that she was either knocked out beforehand or the first stab was fatal enough to render her unable to fight back. Unfortunately, we just don't know. So that's all I have for today's case file. I hope I didn't bore everyone to death with my medical mumbo-jumbo talk. I could have included a lot of gory pictures on the website, searchingforclosure.com, but I figured that would be kind of gross. I also won't be putting any photos of stab wounds on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, which if you want to follow me, I'm at Closure Podcast on all three social media networks. You can find all those links at searchingforclosure.com along with news articles, updates, and merchandise. On next week's episode, I'm taking a journey to the dark side. I'm diving deep into Satanism, witchcraft, paganism, and magic with a K to see what the odds are that Tina's death was an occult sacrifice.
But on an unrelated note, now that I finished Nosferatu 2 by Joe Hill, I decided to get back into true crime, so I got another audiobook. I got The Dating Show Killer by Stella Stans. I'll let you know next week what I thought of it. Of course, I'm listening through Audible, and so can you. You can download this book for free right now, or choose any of the 180,000 audiobooks that Audible has. Plus, you get two free Audible originals also. Just go to audibletrial.com slash closure to get a free month, plus basically three free audiobooks. That's audibletrial.com slash closure. If you would prefer something besides just listening to stuff, you can try a more hands-on approach. That's where Hunt a Killer comes into play. Hunt a Killer is a murder mystery box delivered to your door every month. Each box is basically an episode of a series. At the end of that series, after you've gone through piles of documents, evidence, audio recordings, and case files, after you've eliminated suspects, then hopefully you have caught the killer. You can play Hunt a Killer with your friends, significant other, or by yourself. However you want to play, it's up to you. To skip the application process, just go to huntakiller.com slash audio and use promo code CLOSURE at checkout to save 20% on your first box. By using these two sponsors, you support this podcast because all proceeds will go towards spreading the word about Tina. And as I always say, the more eyes you have on this case, the better the chances are that they'll see something that all of us have missed. That's all for this week. Until next time, thank you for listening.